Thanks for listening to the sermon podcast of Cornerstone Anglican Church in Bridgeport. We are a people seeking to proclaim that Jesus is King by loving God and loving Bridgeport. All right, I have a question, as often is the case uh, as we begin. How many of you enjoy seeing a good list of rules? Wow, we have mixed response. All right. So I would say this is usually typically seen, at least in an American culture, as not so good, as a bad thing, um, as a restrictive, restraining, and terrible thing, um, that someone would have a list of rules. Um, we're coming to the part of Moses' story, as we're walking through it, where there's all the laws. And um, you might find yourself, um, as you've read through this story or maybe skipped through some bits in Leviticus and Numbers um, in the past, um, thinking, okay, the Exodus, that was great. That was good, really exciting. I can get on board with that. Very um, cinematic. And, um, and I, it seemed to show some good things about who God is. Um, but what is all this about? All this stuff that's coming after all these lists of things um, to do or not to do and so on. So in the coming weeks, we're going to be looking at, over some of the next few weeks, um, as we move through this part of Moses' story, the question of why does God give the law to Israel and what do we see from it? I think that there's a few things, just to come overview real big. Um, we see God revealing himself, right, as God has done through the Exodus. God also does in the law. And God reveals himself that there might be a relationship with the people. We see God rescuing, like God did through the Exodus, right? God rescues them also through giving them a way of life, which, which forms them and leads them towards flourishing and abundance. And we see also a call to remember, right? A call to remember who God is and who they are as a people that has been rescued out of Egypt, that in remembering that, in reflecting that in their actions and their way of life, they might be a defined community distinct from the world around them. So the law helps to do those same things, the same things that really the Exodus did as well. So as we see that, we, we see the law reveals who God is, and it answers the question that Israel might be having at this point. Who is this God that brought us out of Egypt? We don't really know much about this God. There's some sense that there were the ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and this is the same God that they uh, followed here and ended us up in Egypt somehow. Um, and it's the God that talked to Moses, and it's the God who did these um, plagues that defeated Pharaoh and brought us out and um, uh, divided the Red Sea and, and all these things. But we don't know much about what this God is like besides that. So they didn't know, and they needed to learn about who God was that they might know God in a relational way. And God gives them the law to reveal that. We see that in the, today's text, right, at the very beginning. Um, this list of things that God gives to them starts with that I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, right? The purpose of this is to follow up. Here's an introduction. The, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt, um, that you know who this God is, Now I'm going to tell you more. I'm going to reveal more of who I am to you. But it also defines them, right? It defines as they get this law from God, as they get um, some of the things we read today and much more, it shows them or it, it, it answers the question of would they actually become a people, right? Or would they be lost among the peoples around them? God's brought them out of Egypt. Would they actually become a distinct people? Um, might be the question that the, the uh, reader 
um, at the time is, is who's just seeing the story might wonder, is, are they actually going to make it uh, as, a, as a new people with all this other stuff going around them, all these other peoples, all these people with other gods, are they actually going to last or will they be lost? And this law helps to define and, and um, answer that question, save uh, the, finish out the possibility that they would actually become a people. But then it also forms them, right? It answers the question of what kind of people would they become, right? They become a people. What kind of people would they be? Would they be like Egypt that they left? Would they be like Canaan that they're going to? God gives them this law so that they might become a people of life and of freedom and of flourishing. Okay, so some of the purposes of the law, where we're going and what some of what, some of what we'll see reflected over the next few weeks. Um, but one of the ways that I see law um, is it's kind of like it, my, my dad's classroom so my dad is a fourth grade teacher and I hear a lot about um, my dad's classroom uh, he's been teaching for almost 20 years now um, and he has to start every year with what the classroom norms or rules or the way that you do things right that's how you have to start and he spends a long time on that before they really are getting to much of anything now, why does, he have to start, why does he have to start with that? Why does he have to start with the rules? What do the rules and the way of do thing, doing things do? One, they reveal the nature of him as a teacher and the nature of the classroom as the shared experience that they're having. Right? The, the classroom way of, of doing things reveals what that's going to be like. But it also forms this group of 25 fourth graders from a bunch of individuals into a people. Right? They get a set way of doing things. They go about life in the room in a certain way. They go about walking the hall in a certain way. They do the same thing every morning. They have this set pattern, the set list of norms and ways of doing things that takes them from being a bunch of individuals to being a people who actually share a life together. Right? They're formed by the rules into a people. And those rules are not just arbitrary rules. Right? They're rules that actually allow for flourishing. It allows for learning to happen. It allows for... Um, them to be a community that cares for each other. It allows for nobody to be left behind and everybody to be um, on this journey of, of learning and formation together in the classroom. So, a similar thing is happening here, right? As God gives them the law. Today we're going to be talking about, specifically, the law of the Sabbath. Uh, next week we'll address uh, some other uh, pieces more broadly of what God gives at Sinai. But today we're going to talk specifically just about the Sabbath. And I want to start with defining some terms. Okay, when we talk about Sabbath, what is it that we're talking about? What do you think of as Sabbath anyway? Um, I figure um, this may have changed over time in different ways, maybe even as you've been part of the community here, but what do you think of as keeping the Sabbath? What does that mean? Growing up, maybe, um, you might have thought, as I somewhat thought something like this, that... um, to keep the Sabbath holy means I go to a church service on Sunday. Some people grow up with something like that as, as your idea of this is what to keep the Sabbath holy means. It means I go to a church service on Sunday. Okay. Um, maybe some people, probably less people, think that Sabbath keeping, um, or maybe you grew up thinking Sabbath keeping means keeping all the detailed laws of the modern, um, modern Orthodox Jewish community. Maybe some people had that idea of keeping Sabbath. Maybe you grew up in Skokie. Um, you saw that. Okay. Um, I don't think either of those are what Moses and what God actually is, the voice of God that all the people hear. I don't think that's what God is telling them here. The command here 
is rest. That's it. Keep the whole Sabbath day holy, set apart, different from the other days, because on the other six days you do all your work, and on the seventh day you rest. That's it. That's the whole command. Okay, so that is what we're talking about when we talk about Sabbath keeping today, is the command to rest. Now, how does this law, this command to rest, reveal God? You can imagine these Israelites, they've just come out of slavery in Egypt, right? They've been under the slavery of Pharaoh, who works them every day, all year, to build these great things, these pyramids, these cities, and gives, they're having to make bricks, and Moses shows up, and then has to make bricks and get the straw to make the bricks, and they have to get, make even more bricks, and all these things that Pharaoh's throwing at them, and saying, work, and work, and work, and work, and work. And God brings them out to Sinai and says, one of the essential things that you must do is rest. This law reveals to the people who are learning who is this God that has brought us out of Egypt, that this God is not like Pharaoh, that this God, this exodus that this God does, this exodus is a rescue from slavery. It's a rescue from taskmasters. It's a rescue from maximization of productivity of working for others who, who would oppress them. And it's good news for Israel. Just like, imagine you, all you have known as a people for 400 years is slavery to an empire. And you've been rescued out of that and you have no idea what is coming next. What is this new thing that we are about to begin? What is this king that we've signed up to follow? And that king unlike Pharaoh, says rest. You are commanded to rest. It's not giving freedom and life to rescued slaves. It was good news. And we're about to look at how it defines and forms Israel. But I think an important question before we do that is, how does this actually apply to us? Right? A lot of times we have the application at the end of, of things today, we're going to ask that now so that we can go through looking at the Sabbath with how it applies to us in mind. What does it mean for us? How does, a, how does the command to rest, to have Sabbath, apply to non-Jewish, us Gentile Christians today? I think often we have this implicitly presented, not necessarily explicitly saying it this way, but it's implicitly presented among many spiritual formation practices. Maybe you've got a book, it's got a chapter on meditation, you've got a chapter on prayer retreats, you've got a chapter on um, fasting, you've got a chapter on serving other people, you've got a chapter on giving, you've got a chapter on Sabbath. Right? It's presented in that way, right? Now, I would say that that is saying this is a practice that's good for you. Right? This is a way of meeting God, this is a way of growing, and you individually can work out if or how you're going to practice this good practice. That's basically what that perspective is saying. And I would say that's a good thing. Good. Take that book, really work with it, um, take it in, and, and there's a lot of good things for you. It's saying here is a gift for you, here is a tool for your growth. Yes, Sabbath is that. But I think it is that at a minimum. And I'm exploring and becoming convinced and would suggest it's worth you looking into as well the idea that a weekly Sabbath day of rest is a core instruction for God's people, which we, every one of us, and as a community, should take very seriously, just like the rest of these Ten Commandments that God gives to Israel. 
This is a key element of loving God and of loving our neighbors. It's placed right there between the ones you read today of of, uh, serve God only, don't have any idols, uh, don't take the Lord's name in vain, which means don't do things in God's name that aren't like honoring to God, something like that. Um, We can talk about that more. It's there with those love God ones. Um, But also it's the bridge between that and the loving neighbor ones, right? Honor your father and mother, don't murder, don't steal, don't commit adultery, um, don't covet, uh, don't bear false witness. Because Sabbath is the one that really most especially does both. And it's the bridge between the two. It, lo- is the key, it is a key element of loving God and loving neighbor. And it's one that I think we are meant to all practice and not miss out on. Now, there's some space to discuss that and how exactly that applies. If that really applies to all of us as Gentiles, we can talk about that a bit more, and I'm willing to have some conversation about that. I'm learning. But here's why I think it really applies to each of us as Gentiles, why I'm exploring that. First, Jesus, in his teaching, right, he reshapes the people's understanding of Sabbath, right? There's all these controversies that he has about, like, he's healing people on the Sabbath, things like that. Um, He's reshaping the understanding of Sabbath for his followers, right? They had this whole list of rules that the Pharisees were trying to enforce about this is what Sabbath looks like. Um, And Jesus challenges some of those assumptions that the Pharisees have, challenges some of the ways that that they go after him about what he's doing. But his teaching about the Sabbath assumes as a foundational thing that his followers are keeping the Sabbath. And it addresses how and why they keep the Sabbath, not if they keep the Sabbath. Now, maybe this is just because his earliest followers at that time, he's talking to Jews who are called to keep the Sabbath. Um, So that alone does not, um, by itself, say us Gentiles should be keeping the Sabbath. Now, now Sabbath, there's this controversy in Acts 15 where the church is working through these questions of how do Gentiles come into the people of God who have been Jewish and are now following Jesus and some things have changed. And in Acts 15, the church gets together and they say, here's the things that we want to make sure that you have the Gentiles do, do, Paul, as you go and you're preaching to them. And there's a list of a few things, um, and there's stuff about meat sacrificed to idols and, and so on. And um, Sabbath doesn't show up there in that list as the, the, the things that they want to make sure the Gentiles do. But neither does not murdering people. Right? And we don't assume because of that that Gentiles can murder people, but Jews better not. Okay, so the commands there specifically relate to um, the new Gentile Christians refusing assimilation into pagan idolatry. And I think it's possible, right, that rest is assumed there. Is Sabbath included in what's assumed? Or is it included in what's kind of excluded in the law that's been fulfilled? The challenge here is that the practice in the early church really varies, right? They, it seems like they were gathering in the early church on Sunday, on the first day of the week, which we would call Sunday now, um, which would be really strange for a group of, of Jewish, um, largely Jewish uh, people. They're having their gathering on this first day of the week because that's the day that the resurrection happened, right? But at the same time, at least the Jewish Christians are still in the synagogue on the seventh day of the week with the other Jews at the beginning in the, in the first century. That lasts until the synagogues generally throughout the Roman Empire kick them out for um, their beliefs about Jesus. Um, and then they no longer have the seventh and first day gatherings, but they just have the first day gathering, right? But that is all about which day they're gathering on, right? It doesn't address if and when they're resting. It doesn't say that there's a change in when their day of rest was. And it's unclear in the history. It seems like 
that early on there was a practice of a seventh day, we're still keeping the Sabbath, and we're gathering on the first day, but it's really not clear in history. And we, when, in a few centuries later, there begins this Sunday Sabbath practice. It's pretty clearly there when it gets to Constantine. And some of the early church fathers are kind of against this Sabbath keeping, but it seems that it's part of this anti-Jewish, anti-Semitic ideas that were in some of the early church fathers that were pushing against keeping Sabbath as a weird Jewish thing. And it's not clear that what these folks are teaching a few hundred years later is exactly from what the apostles thought. That makes it a kind of challenging place, right? When we don't have a clear witness of the early church about what exactly to do. But what I would suggest is this command pre-exists the law of Moses, right? You have this command of the law of Moses, uh, you have these, all the law of Moses, all these things in Leviticus, in Leviticus and Numbers, and I would suggest that this command actually comes before all of that. It's rooted in creation, right? God says, or the, the text says in Genesis that God set apart the seventh day and made it holy, made it special. That's where it comes from. We saw last week in Exodus 16, which is before God gives the law, that they, when they go and they gather the manna, that they're supposed to not gather it on the seventh day. The day of rest is already there before they're given the law. And the writer of Hebrews talks about um, the tabernacle that the Israelites built being a copy of a existing tabernacle in heaven, a heavenly tabernacle, which is interesting, right? And what's in the tabernacle? It talks about all the things of the, the tabernacle being a copy of what already existed in heaven. And what's there in the tabernacle? The Ten Commandments, right? These two tablets with the law written on them by the finger of God, including the Sabbath, is there in the tabernacle. And the writer of Hebrews is saying what's there in the tabernacle is a copy of what is in the heavenly tabernacle, what pre-exists from the very beginning, suggesting to us that the, the Ten Commandments are special. They are different than the rest of the law of Moses. They are something eternal, pre-existing, lasting, and core for all people. That is God's, um, God's way for all of us to follow and they are distinct from the rest of the Mosaic Law. The author of Hebrews also in that section talks about um, a Sabbath rest that is coming for the people of God, talking about that which is yet to come in the future, right? When Jesus returns and makes all things right, there's a Sabbath rest that's coming for the people of God, which suggests that what Sabbath is pointing to, unlike what much of the law is pointing to in the sacrificial system that's fulfilled in Jesus, what Sabbath is pointing to is not yet completely fulfilled, right? And so we enter into keeping Sabbath as a taste of the new creation that is coming. It points forward to something that is not yet here, but is on its way. And it's even explicitly in the law, that in the, that Sabbath command that we read, that all of the foreigners who were in their land were supposed to keep it with them. It wasn't just for the Jews, it was for anybody who was grafted in to the Jewish people. Above all that, it's the rhythm that our bodies were made for. We're not made to work all the time. God made us to rest. So I would suggest that like having no other God, like not murdering, this command to rest applies to each and every one of us, Jew and Gentile who follow Jesus, who assumed Sabbath-keeping in his teaching. And it applies to us always until the rest that is to come for the people of God.
Either way, though, that, that conversation aside for a moment, you could take it either way, right? This is a spiritual practice that can be good for you or something that is a core, essential command for all the people of God. Either way, it is not a burden. It is not an obligation. Sabbath is a gift to you. Sabbath is a gift and a blessing to the people of God because Sabbath is a way to life. Sabbath is a way to knowing God. Sabbath is good for us. We are made for it. And it's so important. It's so essential to us, to, um, to our thriving, that God does not want us to miss it, which is why it is commanded among these Ten Commandments. It is for our sake and for our neighbors that God gives us this gift of this commandment. And its power is largely in its communal nature. It's largely in, the, in us practicing it together as a whole people that it has great power because it allows the whole community to rest when we're all resting together. Now, all of this is to give life and forms us. I suggest it forms us in three ways. All right, so we've got a three-point, all beginning with the same letter, outline going into the next section. I want to do this. This is for all of, all, of your, all of your evangelical instincts out there. Okay. Um, so first, Sabbath forms us in three ways. Sabbath forms us to be, and formed Israel, to be a people of dependence, a people of delight, and a people of distinction. So first, we are formed, and Israel was formed by the Sabbath to be a people of dependence. Right? Now, for me, one of the most challenging parts of the Sabbath um, at least early on, it's getting better, is not checking email. Okay, why is that? Because not working and resting involves letting go of control and involves trusting God and is declaring to the world that we will never actually finish everything. We will never actually make everything right. And we could be endlessly more productive. Um, but there will never actually be an end to the work that we do if we just keep going and going and going. If we just work more, if we just work harder, um, our, our addiction to productivity and to control and feeling like the world needs us will never be satisfied. Sabbath rejects that addiction and declares it will not be satisfied and recognizes that the work of transformation in the world, which much of our work is aimed towards, is ultimately not our work, but it is ultimately God's work. And we need to actually trust that God can do it. Sabbath enters into trusting God to actually do the work and says that the world in God's hands will survive if I am not doing things for a day. That's sometimes difficult to actually believe, but Sabbath, in practicing it, forms that belief in us. Sabbath recognizes also that this working Achieving, accomplishing is not my identity, right? I am not given worth and meaning because of the things that I accomplish. And it's okay, my identity, my worth, my value will not be shattered by resting for a day. Sabbath forms us to actually believe and live that. It forms us to believe my identity actually is from elsewhere, somewhere, my baptism with Christ, that is not threatened by resting. So, Sabbath forms us to be a people of dependence, actually depending on God, not ourselves. 
Second, Sabbath forms us as a people of delight. How many of you have ever noticed a difference in how you see the world when you're driving versus how you're walking, how you see it when you're walking, right? If you're going through, uh, let's say you're driving down Halstead, right? You probably notice things a little bit differently than if you're walking down the same stretch of Halstead, right? Which one do you notice things a bit more deeply? When you're walking, right? Okay, so good to walk, but that's not the point here. Um, often, it's an example of often in our hurry, we miss so much, right? And God challenges us through the practice of Sabbath to stop hurrying and to delight. Sabbath comes from that seventh day of creation, right? In the, that's in the creation story where on the seventh day, God stops, rests, and delights in the very goodness of what God has made. God does not make it just to make it and to accomplish it. God makes it to actually delight in it. Then it is complete, when it has been delighted in. And in the seventh day, in the Sabbath rest, we are to enter into delight as well. We are to enter into thanksgiving. If you look at the Sabbath um, meal and prayers of the Jewish people, um, one, it's unhurried. Two, there's a lot of delighting, right? There's good food, there's good time with people. And there's also a lot of thanking God for creating and sustaining, which feels a little bit like, why is this in the Sabbath prayers? It's not exactly about resting, that we're doing all this thank you for the, the fruit of the vine and thank you for the bread. And thank you. Like, it's because we are in that giving thanks. We are noticing and delighting in what God has given and reflecting God's rest and delight on that seventh day of the creation story. Um, in, in the Sabbath, we are being formed as a people of delight by practicing flourishing as we're meant to, as creatures who are made in God's image. We're meant to reflect God, and God rests and delights. So we too, to really flourish, are to rest and delight as well, to delight like God does in creation, in relationships, as we see there. There's a great book by Rabbi Abraham Heschel uh, about Sabbath, um, but he writes about how, um, the, about how Aristotle uh, saw rest as a means to an end, right, of being able to work better, harder, more productively, right? And I think a lot of times you, you're familiar with um, that kind of perspective around you. I need to do some self-care in order to be more effective in my real work, um, which is the other stuff that I'm um, accomplishing and that self-care sustained, right? There's that kind of narrative out there, right? Aristotle did not go away. Um, but Rabbi Heschel talks about how Sabbath actually practices the opposite of that. Our labor, when we Sabbath, is actually the means to the end. That the end is not our work, not accomplishing, not achieving, but the end that we labor towards is delight and rest. The whole week is oriented to be able to rest well. He writes of us taking that time throughout the days ahead to prepare for the coming of the Sabbath, like a queen, like a palace in the midst of time where God is found. Sabbath poses the question to us, what is the center of your life? What is the place that everything else is oriented towards? What does everything else revolve around and prepare for in your life? Sabbath gives us an opportunity to place God at the center. We don't rest so that we can work better. Work is not meant to be at the center of our lives. But no, we prepare that our delighting in the world that are resting with God 
and reflection of who God is might be, um, might be good and at the center. Here in the Sabbath, we have a taste of God, who God is, the one who commands us to rest instead of to slavery. We have a taste of the new creation that is coming. And we have an invitation because of that to center our lives on preparing to receive and delight in the goodness of that God and the goodness of the new creation. Rest is not just fuel for work. It is where we see God. Sabbath is not for numbing ourselves to what's going on around us. It is not for escaping the world around us. But no, it is for pressing deeply into the reality of the goodness of God and of God's world. As Dallas Willard says, we are to be ruthlessly eliminating hurry. That is a good Sabbath. Ruthlessly eliminate hurry. That takes some work ahead of time. That takes some preparation ahead of time to actually make that possible. But in ruthlessly eliminating hurry, we become like people who are walking down the street instead of driving down the street, who are noticing the goodness of God, the reality of God around us and along the way as we rest. Sabbath in this is not meant to be an obligation, but a delight. Third, Sabbath forms us as a people of distinction. If, how many have read through a decent chunk of the Law of Moses? There's some weird stuff there, right? Okay. So there is some strange stuff there, but this is not an accident. This is how the people of God survived as a distinct people over centuries of being tossed to and fro among these different empires that tried to assimilate them. They had practices that made them weird, that made them distinct, set apart as gods. A writer who was traveling in the Middle East was um, being told by his guide that, okay, over here is the people of, uh, we're in the land of of this tribe or clan, over here we're in the land of this clan, as they were going from place to place. And um, he was asking, like, how would you know that it's that, like, you just know, but how how would somebody know if they were just walking through these places whose land they were in? And... um, he was told that if you actually knew what the practices of the people were, you could just look around at the people in the place and what they were doing, and you would know, oh, I'm on these people's land because these are the things that they're doing. This is the way that they do things. Therefore, I know it's these people, right? Just by observing their actions, their traditions, you would know who it was. Distinct traditions, distinct ways of doing things define people in collective cultures. Define them as we are the people who do this and not that. We are the people who Sabbath would be a a way that the people of God were defined, right? A key element that defined them and preserved them down through the centuries. And as it did that, it made a statement also about the type of people that they were, right? They weren't just the people that kept Sabbath, but specifically that it was Sabbath that made them who they were. It said, we are a people of a God who commands rest. We are the people of delight. We are the people of celebration. We are the people who are not the people of slavery. It says something about the type of God that they followed. Now, continuing that, if this applies to us too, like the rest of our ways of love, Sabbath defines us. It distinguishes distinguishes and preserves us in the midst of the world. It makes us weird. It makes us, it makes clear in the world who we are, which people are, are part of the community. And it makes clear who it is that we follow, the God who commands us to rest and delight. Um, now that often, if, if you think about, if I were actually seriously practicing, practicing Sabbath in my life, that would mean saying no to some things, that would mean being inconvenient sometimes, that would mean being weird, 
and that mean being uh, probably causing some questions sometimes to people around me. That is, again, not an accident. That is on purpose by God. Sabbath calls us to, de- Sabbath declares to the world around us, we are different from you. That's not easy or normal to do in, like, in today's time and place, right? But it declares we are different from you, and not only are we different from you, we have the way to life abundant. We are different, and we have something you need. Now, for Israel, that often was just, we, have, we are different, we have the way to life abundant, and that just is the end of it. But with Jesus, right, it's we are different from you, we have the way to life abundant, and you also are invited in to participate. Um, obviously, it's the 4th of July, oh, right? Um, we, our fireworks have slowed down around this. Um, but as we talk about this, this is a question of calendars, right? Every seventh day you do this. And even the whole weekly calendar that's completely arbitrary and has no reason except for this Sabbath command to be the calendar that the whole world runs on, it's, it's based on, on this, right? And it's, it's going, gone across the whole world uh, just from this command that God gave. Um, but calendars are really important, right? Calendars, celebrations, feasts, traditions, they all do this type of work, right? They all form us. They distinguish a people as this is these people. It defines the people. It tells this is what our values are. It forms their values. It, tell, it forms the story and how they see themselves, right? Now, we have a lot of calendars around us. We have a lot of sets of feasts and festivals around us, right? We have the secular calendars, uh, the shopping calendars, and yes, the patriotic calendars that surround us. And those calendars, those sets of feasts, festivals, practices, traditions, uh, times that you go shopping, decorations in the stores or on the streets, um, times that you gather with family, those all form us. They all define us. They all distinguish us as people, whatever that people is, um, whether it's a cultural group or, or whatever, it might be a national group. They all form us and form the stories that, that we see the world through and live by. But the Sabbath calendar, the church calendar as well, our seasons, they offer an alternative to those other calendars. They offer a better way of celebration, a better way of formation. They offer to form us as people of the God who commands rest. And that's good news for us, right? We don't have to be slaves to whatever the demands are of um, the other calendars, the other stories, the other um, pressures on us, the other values that are, are, um, are, are clamoring for our attention are trying to shape us. So just as we end, I want to mention a few practical questions. What do we set aside with rest, with Sabbath? We, I would suggest we set aside our regular work. Um, and oft, I think what's best is we set aside whatever practices in our lives lead us to cling to control, cling to hurrying, and, try to, and, and cling to numbing ourselves. So that might be different for different people, right? Um, maybe that's email, maybe that's screens, maybe that's driving, maybe that's buying things, maybe that's reading in a productive way, maybe that's household chores, maybe that's binging things. Um, but examine your life and think, what is my regular work? What, in what ways do I really seek to hurry, to control, to numb myself to the world? Let me set aside those things for one day in the week, together with other people. And let me pick up some other things. What do I pick up instead of those things? Whatever brings you delight. Whatever brings you refreshment. Whatever helps you to press into the goodness of God, the goodness of God's world. 
Maybe that's walks. Maybe that's reading fiction. Maybe that is eating good food. Maybe that is having friends around you. Maybe that's not having friends around you. Um, maybe that's um, in gathering, with, or maybe that's walking through nature. Maybe that's engaging with art. Maybe that's taking a nap. It also should probably be praying in some form as well, um, bring, uh, spending that time together with God as you delight in God's creation. So we are to set aside and we're to take up in, in the Sabbath day. It's to be a day of counter rhythms to the other six days. Which day should it be? I'd argue that there's not. Um, there's, not a, there's no reason that it's not the Jewish sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. God did set apart the seventh day and made it holy, and nothing in Scripture seems to change that. Um, but also, I would say, um, a together Sabbath, a regular Sabbath, and a Sabbath at all is better than an individual Sabbath, a random Sabbath each week, or nothing at all, right? Um, so, even if it's a different day, like Sabbathing together with other people, Sabbathing regular, Sabbathing at all, it's always better than not or just doing it individually or randomly. Um, so engage that conversation with other people around you. If you can't Sabbath, I would ask, what are the barriers to the Sabbath, right? If I'm feeling, I really cannot do this. Okay, examine closely, what are the barriers to that? Where do they come from? Are they revealing something inside you? Are they revealing values that might be challenged to change by God? Are they revealing patterns um, in you um, that are actually having you miss out on some of what God desires for you? And is God challenging you to examine and maybe change those patterns? That should be actually part of what we do as a community, right, is notice and help one another to see those patterns and even challenge um, to change those patterns in our lives. Um, sometimes there are patterns beyond, there are circumstances beyond our control, right? Where there are, I need to work seven days in order to survive um, and support my, my household. So the question then becomes for all of us as a community, can we come together to address that for somebody else, that they might be able to rest? Because God desires that for them, right? God brought all the people out to all rest. Um, God did something about the conditions that were uh, preventing their Sabbath. Can we also do that for one another, that everyone might have the opportunity? Um, this is not a place for individual shame, but it's a place for communal responsibility and care for each other. One side note, Jesus does heal on the Sabbath, which um, suggests that um, the Sabbath, the, this idea that Sabbath being made for people rather than people for the Sabbath would highlight um, that there is maybe an exception for a, being, having essential medical care or similar things available to people to be able to take care of be taken care of at all times. But the question then is how can we care for and um, bring those who are needing to do that essential, urgent medical care on those days into also being able to rest as well. That's something for us to figure out together. So in the end, this is good news for all of us. Good news that God has a gift for you. This good news reveals that God is not Pharaoh. God rescues you out of slavery, out of, sli out of striving, and into freedom, into life, into rest. But that's not just on your own, right? God, res God rescues you into experiencing that life as part of a people, a people shaped by rest, delight, and celebration, a people who are distinct from the world around us, the feasts around us, the ways of doing things around us, but inviting the world into that distinct people. So let's not miss out on God's good gift.
to us, but let's enter into receiving this together as a people in the days and years to come. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.